morning and welcome to Christ Church. It is so good to be together, whether you're here in the room with us, whether you're joining us in West or you're joining us online this morning, it is just so good for us to be together. My name is Pastor Mike and I'm on the pastoral team here at Christ Church and it is my pleasure and my honor to start a brand new sermon series with you today. But we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. That sometimes we, in our sermon series, we will take a look at a book of the Bible and we'll study a book of the Bible or we'll take a character from the Bible and we'll trace their story throughout Scripture. For the next three weeks, we are going to do a theme study in which we trace a specific metaphor. We're going to take a word that is used metaphorically. We're going to trace it throughout Scripture. And if you didn't get the idea from that awesome bumper video, our word for the day is fruit. And so for the next three weeks, oh man, some people are sour about Wordle apparently. Um, The next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the way in which scripture uses the word fruit as a metaphor to enrich our lives and help teach us things um, about God and what God wants us to know. So the first week, we're going to be talking about how fruit is used in the Jewish scriptures, specifically, sometimes we call it the Old Testament. Next week, we're going to be talking about the way that Jesus uses the metaphor of fruit in the Gospels. And then in our third week, we're going to talk about the way the Apostle Paul uses the metaphor for fruit in the epistles. And so this morning, I get to help you guys be Hebrew scholars. So are you guys up for learning a little bit of Hebrew this morning? And so uh, here is our Hebrew word for fruit with three characters. And in Hebrew, you read things from right to left. So the first word, or first letter in our word is pay. Say pay. Second word, uh, second letter is resh. And the third letter is yud. Awesome. You guys are Hebrew scholars now, so um, you can go home and be like, oh, I learned something today. And so, pei, resh, yud, in Hebrew, they don't really have consistent vowel sounds, and so words are often based off of the consonants. But whenever you see these three consonants put together, sometimes we will say um, that's pronounced peri, which means fruit. Um, and if you have trouble remembering, here's a little visual pun for you. Peri means fruit in Hebrew. Um, There are 119 occurrences of peri in the Old Testament. And just briefly, we're going to talk about some of the different ways in which that word appears in Scripture. So you have verses like this where we say, Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit, with the seed in it. Now, when you see the word peri or fruit used like this, you don't have to think too hard about it. It literally just means fruit. Um, And so um, dates, pomegranates, grapes, figs, these were all common fruits in the ancient Near East. And um, often there is references to actual physical fruits. Now, other times we see occurrences like this, where it says, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. Or like this passage that says, but the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Or in another verse from Genesis, God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You guys can see where this is going, right? Fruit becomes a metaphor for... Be 
babies. Fruit is a metaphor for offspring or children, and that is often used in the Old Testament, and it is also used in the New Testament as well. But sometimes we get passages like this that say, since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. Now, when we see fruit used like this, fruit becomes a metaphor as the things that are produced by our actions. See, fruit is such a pliable metaphor that would have been so familiar to those who were both writing the scriptures and for those who were reading in that they would have known that it takes hard work to produce fruit. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong when trying to produce fruit. So we're going to take this metaphor and we're going to stick it in the back of our head because it's going to come back next week because this is one of Jesus's favorite ways to use this metaphor. But today, this week, we're going to talk about a specific way in which fruit is used as a metaphor almost exclusively in the Old Testament. And it's this idea of fruit as temptation. And we can kind of understand why that might be a good metaphor, because uh, fruit is tasty, it's delicious, it's sweet. And especially for those in the Near East that didn't have a crumble cookie or a chocolate chisel, um, fruit was often the best way to have something sweet, and so it was desirable. And so it becomes a great metaphor for temptation. Now, you guys might be able to see where this is going and what story we're going to dive into today, because even if you are not super familiar with Christianity, you might be familiar with the story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit. And so that's what we're going to dive into that story and talk about the way that fruit is used in that story. Now, before we get into the story, we're going to set a little bit of context in which God has just created the earth and everything in it. He's created a man and a woman, and up until this point, he hasn't even given them a name yet. And so as we're reading when it says the man, we're referring to Adam, and when it says the woman, we're referring to Eve. And God has given Adam and Eve this beautiful garden, this paradise to live in, and they want for nothing. They have everything they need in this garden. But God only has one condition, and so God tells Adam, he says, there is a tree in the middle of the garden, and of that fruit you shall not eat, because if you eat of it, you will die. And so that starts our story, that's the context for our story. So we get a character that comes right away at the top of Genesis 3. So if you want to join us and read along in the scripture, you can open your Bible up to Genesis 3, and we're going to start at verse 1. It says that the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Eve, did God really say you must not eat any of the fruit from the trees in the garden? You can already see that this serpent, this snake, is putting himself in the way of what God has intended. And you can start to see the rhetorical strategy that the snake is going to use, which is to start doubting what God has said. And so he starts to get Adam and Eve thinking, but did God really say that? 
Did God, did God really mean what he said? And anytime we start thinking this in our heads, when we start thinking like the snake, but did God really say that? Instant, red flag, right there, red flag. Because as soon as we start thinking, but did God really say that? Be like, well, did God really tell us not to lie? Because I can think of some good instances that lying might be useful. Or, you know, did God really say that I have to love my neighbor as myself? Because there's this guy, Steve, that's always at my kids' baseball games and is always, he's always yelling at the umpires and, man, that guy's a jerk. Is, is that guy my neighbor? Do I have to love him? Did God really say that? Nevertheless, it's a red flag because when we start doubting what God has said, then we start to undermine the relationship and trust that we have in God. And so Eve, or the woman, responds, she says, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So actually, Eve is doing something really great here. She is remembering what God has said and specifically remembering the boundaries that God has set. Because one of the things that is true in Scripture is that God sets boundaries for us out of love, not out of some misplaced uh, wanting to control our lives and micromanage us, but God sets boundaries out of love because the consequence of eating this fruit is what? Death. And so God is trying to protect Adam and Eve by setting boundaries. But there's something that's going to happen that the snake has already seeded doubt in Eve and Adam's mind. And they start thinking, okay, I know God said this. I know what God said, but, but is that really how it is? And anytime we start to think this in our heads, another red flag. Because here's the thing. We, especially as Christians, when we know God's word, when we come to church, when we read his word, we know what God has said. It's not hard. It's right out there in the open. But as soon as we add that but in, we start thinking things like, okay, I know that God says, said not to gossip, but you know that, that guy Steve that was really, uh, really obnoxious? Did you guys hear that uh, his wife left him? And we fall into this trap in which we know what God said, but we choose to do something different. I'm convinced that this word but every time we see it in the phrase should have two T's in it because <laughs> the only thing that can come out of this but is crap. <laughs> and so when we get back into our story, the, the serpent replies, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, here's one thing that we need to note, is that the serpent actually isn't being completely untruthful. That, in fact, 
When he says that you won't die, he's right. When Adam and Eve eventually eat the fruit, they don't drop dead right in that very instance. And scripture even says that when they do eat it, their eyes were opened. And that they did start to know good and evil. But there is danger here as well. Because sometimes the best lies are shrouded in half-truths. And anybody that has spent any time on the internet knows that this is true. You know, we were supposed to be with the advent of the internet and computers. We were said to be living in the information age. But anybody who's spent any time on the internet in the past few years knows that we are probably living in the misinformation age. Because it is so easy for people to lie to us and shroud it in things that seem like they should be true. Now, it's at this moment that the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. Now, notice that these are actually good things. She wanted to appreciate the beauty. She wanted the wisdom that the fruit would give her. Which leads us to another danger, is that sometimes bad fruit looks just like good fruit. For me, I love the fruit strawberries especially, and I fool myself every single time that I go into the grocery store in the middle of November and I'm like, ooh, strawberries, they look so good. And so I buy a carton, I bring them home, and I take a bite and they taste like absolutely nothing. <laughs> so watery, there's no sweetness, and it's only then that I remember, ah, dang, of course, it's November. There isn't any place in the world in which strawberries are in season. But it looks so good. It looks beautiful. It looks delicious. But it is bad fruit that is disguised as good fruit. And I'm not saying that Eve's pursuit of wisdom and beauty are bad things. Those are not inherently bad things. But what is dangerous is that in order to do so, she has to threaten the relationship that she has with God and with others, specifically Adam. So it says she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Now, you'll notice that I have highlighted a couple of words in here, who was with her. Who is that who? Adam. Yeah, Adam was with her the entire time. And if you don't believe me, it's right there in the Hebrew where it says, um, basically transliterated, she gave also to her husband with her. But one of the things that's a huge pet peeve of mine is that there are some translations of the Bible who skip over this phrase, that they don't include it in there. And we begin to get this impression that, well, this is all Eve's fault and that Adam just wasn't there at the scene of the crime. And that right there, that is a red flag. Because there are different ways in which people have used the omission of Adam's presence as an excuse to say, oh, well, Eve is the one who sinned, not Adam. And we even get that impression if you keep reading down into verses 11 and 12, when God confronts Adam and Eve, God says, 
wait, you ate from the tree that I specifically asked you not to? And Adam's response is to say, she did it. She did it. She's the one who caused me to do it. And there are pastors and preachers who have emphasized Adam blaming Eve and skipped over that phrase right there to build an entire nonsensical theology about how, well, because Adam or because Eve was the one who sinned first and ate it first, and because Adam wasn't there, she caused Adam to sin, and that means that you know women for all time are the source of original sin, and that they're the ones who are constantly tempting men and out to get them. That's such a red flag. Because the truth from Scripture is that we are all responsible for the fruit that we consume. That we are responsible for the fruit that we consume, the temptations that we pursue. Adam is not off the hook here because Eve is the one who suggested that he eat too. And if we don't think that that damaging theology has seeped into our modern day, I give you this instant that always, whenever people say this, it drives me insane. That whenever we hear of some horrific case of sexual assault, somebody always asks the question, well, what was she wearing? Now, men, I don't know if you were paying attention, but just about every woman in the room mouthed the words wearing. Because they know how that has been weaponized against them. And that even we as Christians have taken the responsibility off of somebody who has sinned and tried to misplace it somewhere else. But as Christians, we don't get to do that. We are the ones who are responsible for the fruit that we consume. As Christians, we don't get to say, well, my addiction isn't my fault. I was peer pressured into it. We don't get to say that the lust in my heart or the adultery that I commit is not my fault because somebody else tempted me into it. And as Christians, and especially as parents, we can't do the same things to our kids that hurt us when we were kids and hide behind an excuse that says, well, that's just the way I was raised. As Christians, we are responsible for the fruit that we consume. That temptation is not an excuse for ignoring what God has said and following God despite any of our own intuitions. When we get back into our story, it says, At that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. you can see that the snake was right. Their eyes were opened, but it wasn't to the thing that they thought it was. Because disobeying what God has put forth in our lives 
only invites shame and regret. And it's just as true as it was then, as it is now, that all of us eat fruit that we regret. And sometimes we know it in that very moment, just like Adam and Eve did. And sometimes it takes us years to recognize the ways in which we have gone astray of what God has wanted for us. And that can be hard living in that shame, living in that regret. Facing the responsibility for our own mistakes because that weight is heavy. It feels like shackles and imprisonments and it continues to disconnect us from the people that we love and the people around us. But there's hope. And the hope is that God does not forsake us even when we make mistakes. That if we continue to read the story of Adam and Eve, God's mad. He's mad at Adam and Eve, and he has to draw new boundaries for them and says, look, there was one rule, you broke it, you can't be in this garden anymore. But God does not abandon Adam and Eve. No, God continues to walk with Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's children and their children's children, and God continues to be faithful even in the midst of human brokenness. God so desires to be with us and so hates the idea of forsaking us that God came to earth in the form of a man named Jesus. And through Jesus, we know something about God that I think is truly remarkable. That our God would rather face death than leave us to rot in our shame and our own condemnation as we take the responsibility on for our mistakes. That God continues to walk with us. God continues to give us new life, both in this life and the next life. Because God does not give up on us, and God does not give up on you. So I don't know what kind of shame or regret you might be carrying at this moment. What mistakes are weighing heavy on your heart, but know that God has not left you. God is looking for a restoration in relationship between you and him. And that God loves you so much that God would give up God's own life to be with you. But we still have to ask ourselves, yes, God is with us. God is pursuing us, but what fruit are we pursuing? What temptations exist in our life that we're struggling to resist? What temptations are hard for us to shake? What are the things that are keeping us from a right relationship with God and the people around us? And so it is with that that I invite you into prayer with me. Gracious God, 
We give you thanks that you have loved us and you have not abandoned us, even when we make mistakes. Even when we have one job and we fail to do that job, God, you love us so much that you protect us and you shelter us with your boundaries. God, we ask for your protection from temptation, that you might keep us from the things that might lead us astray and the things that seem almost good but aren't good. God, we ask that when we do make mistakes, when we screw up, God, we ask for your forgiveness. And God, we ask for your help in forgiving others when they make mistakes that hurt us. So God, be with us. God, move us. God, continue to be and work in our lives in profound and powerful ways. We love you so much, and it's your name we pray. Amen.